Good evening. <laughs> uh, I was saying I'm excited about the beginning of our summer series. Uh, excited. Uh, I think this is going to be a great month. I think we have some great speakers lined up. Tonight we have Brother Jeremy Weekly with us. And uh, I am uh, really excited to hear his message and, uh, and his sermon. I'll introduce him further uh, here in just a little bit as the service goes on. But uh, thank you so much for your attendance. Uh, Try to make sure throughout the month of June that we prioritize coming here, make sure that we spread the word. I think it's going to be a really good series, and uh, and I'm excited for it to get started. We will uh, have an opening song, and then uh, Tom Langley will lead us in our opening prayer. Uh, We're going to do something a little different tonight. Uh, I'm going to be leading singing, which I haven't done in years, and so... uh, I'm going to ask that all of you join in and help me. Uh, this is, if it doesn't go well, it's on you is what I'm saying. You guys, no, uh, I'll try my best, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask for your help as we, uh, as we do this. The first song will be uh, number two, uh, if you're using the book, but it's We Praise Thee, O God. Uh, as I said, we have Brother Jeremy Weekly with us. Uh, he's the preaching minister at the West End Church of Christ. He's been there for over seven years. That's uh, uh, a strong and vibrant congregation. He's doing a wonderful job in his ministry there. I know uh, people who have gone there and worshiped there and uh, heard nothing but great things about him and about the work going on uh, with that church. Uh, he previously served with the Fourth Street Congregation in Selmer, Tennessee for over nine years. He is married to Sally, who's uh, here with us and uh, for over 20 years, and they have two children. Uh, Addie just finished her freshman year at Freed Hardman University, and Grant will be a junior this fall at Hardin Valley Academy. Uh, Jeremy is a graduate of Freed Hardman uh, with an undergraduate and then a master's in ministry and also has an MBA from UT Martin. He is not only someone who is, has tremendous respect for the text, uh, is an excellent communicator, a wonderful minister, but he's someone who genuinely loves the Lord, and I'm excited to have him here and to learn from him here tonight. So, with no more ado, Brother Jeremy. Man, after an introduction like that, wow. <laughs> I better do well, right? Yeah. Um, I'm so glad to be with you all here tonight. I've heard, as Travis said about West End, I've heard nothing but great things about the Maryville congregation. Now, Got to get this straight. Is it Maryville or Maryville? Maryville. Yeah, I think I heard both. I don't know. <laughs> but that, that's long for you to Knoxville. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, but so glad to be with you all tonight. I know a lot of folks that you know, uh, familiar, have acquaintances with a lot of the same people. I saw Annie here just a minute ago. I don't know. He may have run out when he he is right there when he found out I was preaching tonight. Uh, Randall Harris. Many of you guys know Randall Harris uh, from Freed Hardman. Great friend of mine. We've become really good friends since he's worked at Freed Hardman. Uh, Melvin Hughes and just all kinds of wonderful people. Sarah Beth. Uh, I think her, it's, it's Pope now. I think that's right. Yes, yeah, Sarah Beth. So lots of folks. In fact, Sarah Beth is from all the way back in Selmer, Tennessee. Uh, she grew up there for a little while at 4th Street where I was preaching. But I thought we'd begin tonight with a little bit of audience participation just at the very beginning. I want you, and you can, you can just kind of call this out if you'd like to, I'm going to do a logo quiz. I want to see how much you remember, how much you can recognize these logos without having the words attached to them. So here's the first one. What's that one? Amazon. Okay, if you're like me, there's a package every day on your front doorstep <laughs> with the smile on it, and it causes a frown at the end of the month. All right. Uh, the next one is this one. Pepsi. Everybody says it tastes better than Coke. I don't believe them. All right. This one. Oh, you got to know Chick-fil-A. That's the Lord's chicken, right? Yeah. Not, not open on Sundays. Okay, we love that one. Here's another one. Yeah, our, our, our education minister at West End calls that 
Starbucks. I don't know. I, I, I still frequent there. Anyway, here's another one. Apple. Everybody knows Apple. And here's the last one. Yeah, they don't like to play well together, those last two, do they? But the reason I show you these logos is that even without words, you can, with your eyes, identify what these logos represent. Another word we might use is these are icons, right? And that's really the word that you read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 as Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, writes them and tells them, he says that he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image in the Greek is icon. Don't worry. We're not going to do a lot of Greek tonight, okay? But I wanted you to hear that word in the Greek because you already know it, because you see it every day. The reason you knew what those logos represented is because you see them every day, because of branding efforts by those companies, because you can visualize that and just automatically know. In Colossians, Paul's primary purpose in writing to the church is to express to them, to, to remind them about the preeminence of Christ. Now, that's a big fancy church word, right? Preeminence. I don't think we use that on the Today Show or, you know, you don't read it in the paper very often. Here's what it means, above all. And you get that sense, even beginning in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, as you read. Let's read a little bit further along here. Rather than just looking at one particular verse, we're going to look at a section here. But we are going to concentrate on verse 15 as we get into the main part of our our lesson tonight. But beginning in verse 15 of Colossians 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, now here's another one of those places, all creation. You catch that? He's already beginning to talk about the preeminence of Christ by saying he is over all creation. That's a part of that that denotes it. Then he goes on and says, for by him, all things. You'll see that phrase quite a bit in your study of Colossians. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Everything is what he says. Everything is all-encompassing. Do you see the preeminence of Christ coming uh, to, to the top here? And he says, whether it's visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Again, that preeminence of Christ. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Beautiful, beautiful verse for us to consider He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Do you see it? Are you already catching it? You're seeing what Paul is over and over. He's a master of words as he's inspired by the Spirit to record these things. He's a master of of expressing to them what it means that Jesus is above all truly. And he finishes up, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love that passage of Scripture. I love the fact that you have selected to study the book of Colossians in your summer series. It's a rich, rich part of the Word of God. Of course, all of, of God's Word is rich. But Colossians, especially in the day and age in which we live, where everybody is vying for attention... Everybody thinks they're better than everybody else. Colossians is an excellent practical study for us as Christians trying to live in a world where people all think they're number one all the time, right? It's a great reminder to us of who is truly number one and should be number one in our life. This is not the only time, by the way, as we look at and concentrate on Jesus being the image 
of the invisible God that, that we learn this about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself, especially in the Gospel of John, reveals this over and over again. Listen to some of, of these passages of Scripture. In John chapter 1, in verses 14 and 18, in verse 14 of John chapter 1, as John has a, he has his own uh, genealogical, genealogical record of Jesus. His is more of the theological genealogy of Jesus, as he reminds us that Jesus has always been. But in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is hinting to us there. If you want to see God, just look at Jesus. And then verse 18, he comes out and says that he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at Father's side, at the Father's side, has made him known. That's kind of a hard, uh, that's a little bit of hard Greek to translate there for us in, into English to make it make a lot of sense. But here's what he's saying. He says, now nobody's ever seen God, seen Jesus, you have. That's what he's saying. Nobody's ever seen God face to face per se. But if you've seen Jesus, you've gotten awfully close. He's revealed him to you. That's what he's telling us as he opens up this, this gospel account, this good news about who Jesus is. But as we come back and think about some other passages in John, in John chapter 12 and verse 45, Jesus says, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, later on in John chapter 14, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, especially verses 1 through 6, is where Jesus reminds those apostles, he's already told them, look, I'm going to leave you. He's going to tell them later, it's to your benefit that I leave you. So in John 12, he said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But in John chapter 14, right after in in that discussion where he said, "I, I go to prepare a place for you, Thomas speaks up, right? I think doubting Thomas is unfair, by the way. Thomas was just a person who wanted to verify things. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know how to get there? And Jesus says in John 14, 6, right? You could finish this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But then we come back and someone says, Lord, it's enough. Just, just show us. Just show us the Father. Just, just, come, just show us. We just want to see him. And this is what Jesus says in verse 9 to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Like the icon on your phone, right? We call them apps. It's short for application. The little picture on your phone that you tap opens the application. It brings it up in more fullness, right, when you tap on that icon. Or on your computer screen, when you double-click, it opens that application, John is telling us, or John and, and, and here in Colossians, Paul is telling us, when you see Jesus, you are seeing the application. You're seeing the fullness of God. So if you have questions about who God is or what he would do, just look at Jesus. And as we study this tonight, what does that really mean for us, though? We've read verses 15 through 20, which, by the way, some scholars think was an early Christian hymn. Isn't that kind of cool? That they would sing those, those words and 
verses 15 through 20. We're not sure if that's the case or not, but it, it might be. And Paul is using something they would have connected with to, uh, to connect with them. But what does it mean for us tonight as we study Jesus being the image of God? What does it mean for us and what does that mean for our, our practical every single day life? Well, here's the first thing is that, it, that Jesus being the image of God means that he is revealing God's nature to and one of the, the quotes here that I have from Owen Albright in his commentary says, Jesus has made the invisible God visible and understandable. That's pretty neat. You think about the Sermon on the Mount, how many times Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And to know that he is God speaking, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is clarification on things that have been messing up in the law of Moses for a long time, <laughs> right? He clarifies it for him. Jesus makes God more understandable for us. Really, when we see his actions and understand who he is. Through him, the fullness of God has been revealed. There are some other scholars that have said things like this. Um, to say Christ is the image of God is to say that in him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him, this is F.F. F. Bruce, by the way, in him, the invisible has become visible. Paul will write about this again in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 when he says Christ who is the image of God. And then the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? Thank you, Hebrew writer. We're, uh, we're, we appreciate that. But what does all that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus has revealed the nature of God? It means that Jesus is, in essence, the perfect package to explain to us how we can have a God who is just and righteous and holy, but also gracious and merciful. The world we live in today, there are people, when they look at God, they see him as some, some unruly, uh, uh, you know, just dictator. And there are other people that see him like as a real fluffy Santa Claus all the time, right? The fact of the matter is that God is, is in essence, both. He is righteous and just and holy, but he is also gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving. He is not one or the other. He is both. And we see that so clearly in the life of Jesus. Consider how Jesus displays or demonstrates for us the righteousness, the justice, and the holiness of God. And quite honestly, most of the time, he reveals that to us in his time and on this earth as he speaks to the Pharisees. <laughs> you know, the group that he spoke the harshest to while he was in his ministry were the Pharisees. The people who had decided that they knew better than God. The people who decided they were going to add rules and traditions and that it wasn't enough to follow God. We have to tell you how to follow God. And Jesus calls him out for it on more than one occasion. Do you remember those times, even people when Jesus was at the height of his popularity, he feeds the 5,000? And you remember what happens afterward? John reveals this in John 6. Jesus kind of leaves. He's trying to, to move away and go on to somewhere else. And the people track him down. Do you remember this? They chase after him. And in John chapter 6, then Jesus turns to them and he starts talking about being the bread of life there in John chapter 6 and what all that means. And it starts getting a little confusing for them. And then towards the end of that, he says, and by the way, you didn't, you didn't come to me. You didn't come track me down because you want to really hear the truth. You came to me because you want your bellies filled. You came because of what I can do for you. You didn't come to find out who I am. 
And in John 6, towards the end, he says, and many disciples stopped following Jesus that day. Jesus never pulled any punches. He spoke the truth. Whether it was to Pharisees or even to people that were following him, he didn't pull any punches. He explained what holiness is, what it means to truly be unique uh, in the sight of God. In Matthew chapter 23, he pronounces a, a series of woes. It's called the woe chapter, right, on the Pharisees. He says, you're hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs. Uh, you are our blind guides who are trying to, to lead people when you can't even figure out the way yourself. He, he really hammers down on them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells in Matthew 5 and verse 20, he tells the crowd, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. That's to an audience that is most likely, they, they respect the Pharisees. They respect their knowledge. They respect following them for the most part. And, and Jesus says, we have to be more righteous than that. Over and over again, God, or Jesus reveals God's righteousness and his justice. But he also, on many occasions, shows us that God is a gracious and a merciful God. Do you remember the scene in Luke chapter 7? Jesus has been invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner, a great honor. Uh, Simon is apparently one of the Pharisees, and uh, as Jesus sits at the table there, there's a woman who comes up. And we think there's some parallel accounts of this. We're not 100% sure of that, but suffice it to say in Luke's account, he kind of just names her a, a sinful woman. And she comes in to Jesus, and she begins to wash his feet. She's crying. She's using her hair. And Simon thinks if he knew what kind of woman this was, Luke tells us she was known to be, she was identified as a sinner. We don't know all that that is entailed in that. But she bends down and she is wiping Jesus' feet. And Simon is like, if you only knew who this was, and, and Jesus knowing that, he tells that little parable. He says there was a, a, a master who had a slave who owed him like 500 and one that owed him 50 and he forgave both of those debts. Which one do you think loved him more? And, and Simon says, well, of course, the one that he forgave more debt. And he says, this woman loves me more than you do, in essence. She's been forgiven much. He shows us in that moment that our God is a, is a gracious God. In the contrast of being at a Pharisee's house, a person who's supposed to be righteous, that the community sees as righteous. And yet it's the woman who is called the sinner in the community that he extends grace and mercy to. There are times where, like Mark reveals, that Jesus heals the man with leprosy. Do you remember that? And for us, it's not a big deal. Sometimes we'll read right past it, but he says that he reached out and touched the man. That's a no-no. You don't touch somebody with leprosy. That man probably hadn't been touched in years, as long as he'd had leprosy. He's been separated from family. He's never, if, if you've been away from your loved ones for a long time, one of the first things you do is embrace, right? During COVID, maybe some of you guys sequestered the person who had COVID. And after a while, when everybody tested negative, you finally did what? One of the first things you want to do was hug each other. I remember the first time, the first Sunday that we got back to West End, we were meeting in person. It was hard not to hug everybody. We'd been, we hadn't seen each other. We'd just seen each other through screens. We were getting tired of that. We need that human touch. Jesus showed grace. He showed compassion on numerous occasions to people who needed that. And he's God. 
He's saying, I want you to see how God would treat these people, how God will view these people. There are times when, like I said, the world, and even sometimes we sometimes get into habit, we want to emphasize one over the other, God's righteousness and his justice and his holiness. And there are times in Scripture we see that. God tells us he's not playing around. When he tells us something, he means it. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. The truth is the truth, and it doesn't change. But he also tells the church at Ephesus, yes, I want you to teach the truth, but I want you to do it with love. Don't forget the love. It's not an either-or with God. In Jesus, we see the, the nature of God, that he is both a loving God and a God of justice. He's a God who does what he says he's going to do, and he does it because of love. Even in those times that I've mentioned where Jesus speaks in a very convicting manner uh, to the Pharisees, he does that in part because he wants them to change. We see that on occasions where, like, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he seems to be, to some degree, we're not sure whether he's come to trick Jesus or whether he really wants to know. Jesus has compassion on that person. He wants him to know the truth. The reason that God sometimes is so blunt is because he loves you. He wants you not to engage in sin because that takes you away from him. Truth and love are always harmonious when they're both founded on God, not people's opinions. We're living in a world today where people think God is mean and evil because he said something is sinful. And then we have others that say, well, God doesn't care about all that. As long as you love him, he's going to love you, and it's, all, it's no big deal. It's, it's all okay. It's not either one. It's both. And we have to come to reconcile that, and we can, as Paul tells us, through the image of Jesus. He is God represented to show us how God moves and how God thinks, how God perceives this. But the second thing I want us to see tonight is, this, that Jesus not only reveals God's nature, but he also embodies God's love. And I've already mentioned some of this with Jesus being very compassionate with people, whether it was the man with leprosy or whether it was the sinful woman, that Jesus was one who just showed us, he just demonstrated God's love for humanity, for all humanity. John 3, 16, probably one of the the passages most people in the world can, can finish, right? Do you remember when I was growing up at the baseball games, football games, any kind of game you went to, somebody had the John three sixteen sign. Do you guys remember that? Somebody was always holding that thing up, right? Some, some souls just holding the thing up like the entire game. Their arms must have been like deadly tired, but they did it almost every game. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right? It doesn't say God tolerated the world. It doesn't say for God so loved the people that will love him back. That's not what John says. And those are the words of Jesus, by the way. It's written in red in your Bibles. Jesus is the one that reveals to us that God so loved the world, he gave his only unique or begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not have, or might not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life, depending on your translation. God says, this is how much I love you. I'm going to send my son, who is the agent of creation, by the way, He's going to live among you. He's going to teach my word. He is going to be me in front of you. He's going to show you the fullness of who I am, the fullness of all things, as Paul has written to the church at Colossae, and then you're going to crucify him. That's how much I love you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, I love the New American Standard translation of this. But God demonstrates his own love 
toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that verse says? God made the first move. God made the first move. We didn't figure out how to love God, and God said, well, now I'll send my son. From the very beginning, from the, before the foundations of the world, as, the, as Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians, God loved us. He wanted us to be adopted. And so in love, he sent his son to die for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he reminds us that he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, it was always God's plan. The word predestined here doesn't mean uh, that some people are predestined to heaven and some are predestined to hell. That doesn't make sense in this context. What he's saying is that was always God's plan before the world even started. God loved you before you ever came into existence. What that teaches us is to remember the value of each human being, the value of human life in general, but the value of each person. If in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, not again, not because we loved him, but the love that he loved us with, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This love communicates the value of each and every person that's alive on our planet. Sometimes I have a hard time with that. Do you? Man, I do. I have a hard time of being a person who embodies the love of God, even as one of his representatives who wears the name of his son, because that can be a tall order to embody the love of God, especially when there are people who aren't very loving towards you. We often see Jesus showing compassion to people that the rest of society had dismissed, had discounted, had disregarded, right? He spends time with them. He, he listens to them. He eats in their homes. He even calls some of them to be his apostles. That's the kind of love that God has for humanity. We see him spending time with the broken and the burdened. He shows us what love looks like. And it's not because we are worthy of that. We are not worthy of God's love. And you say, well, I, I don't... You can ask my wife, Sally, sometimes I'm pretty unlovable, okay? <laughs> she'll, hear, she'll testify to that. Sometimes I can be a little unlovable. We all can. None of us are worthy of this measure of God's love, but he considers us to be worth it. That's why he sent his son to die for us, because you are that valuable to him. And so when we talk about, when Paul mentions that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is meant to embody just how far-reaching God's love is for us. But the last thing I want us to consider tonight as we uh, come to the conclusion of what I have for you tonight, and and Colossians 1 is is rich, very rich, is this, that Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, that he is the proof. He's the proof that God is a promise keeper. Uh, The Messiah is talked about long before Jesus ever is born, right? All the way back, as a matter of fact, in, in, uh, all the way back in Genesis, but a little bit more specifically in Genesis chapter 12, when God speaks to Abraham and makes a promise to him, right? I, sometimes we have, uh, we have a kindergarten and a preschool at West End, and I get a 
and do devos with them. And we sometimes sing the Father Abraham song. You guys know that song, Father Abraham had many sons? And I always try to explain it to him. I'm like, look, here's what this means. Because it's a really fun song to sing, but I don't want you to miss the point of it. We are all Abraham's children, in essence, through Jesus. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes the promise. He makes the covenant with Abraham. All nations, all families of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed, Abraham. Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus is the answer to that promise that God makes. He's the realization of it. And that is for anyone, right? For God so loved the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to bless all nations of the earth. He's the proof that God keeps his promises. In Ephesians chapter 1, we won't take the time to read all of this. But again, this is one of those passages where Paul does this. We just read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You go back and read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and you see a lot of this same. He Over and over again, he's talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. That's a key term. And Ephesians is in Christ. Go through and highlight that or something similar into Christ or in Christ. Um, over and over again, you'll find that over 20 times in, in the book of Ephesians because he's trying to get him to understand that all these blessings come through Christ. And in chapter 3, he, he talks about some of the things like forgiveness. And there's a phrase in there where he says he, he lavishes us. He lavishes those things on us. I remember the first time that I read that, I think in the ESV is when it really stood out to me as I was reading, and I thought, lavishes? That's a, that's a word that we sometimes use, but we use it very sparingly because we're talking about, I mean, that's like to the best and a lot of it, right? Here's what that tells me. God doesn't forgive you just enough. He forgives you all that you need and more. Now, we obviously, when we do wrong in life, we need to repent of that. We need to seek to make things right. But I think as Christians, we think we're just going to slide into heaven, that we're, we'll be forgiven just enough. And I think that holds us back sometimes. When we come to understand Jesus being the image of the invisible God, think about the cost. The cost to make the forgiveness of your sins possible. It's not a small thing, is it? It's everything. It's God offering himself for you so that all your sins can be forgiven, so that he can lavish on you forgiveness so you can continue to be his child. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God is the one who makes it possible for us to become like him, to become holy and righteous, It's through Jesus that that happens, not because you figure out how to be good all the time, because you never sin, because you are the best person on the planet. No, it's God's grace that has been extended to us that makes that possible for us to appear before him that way, and all that happens through Jesus. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, and this most likely was a hymn in the early church as well. He was manifested in the flesh, Jesus the image vindicated by the Spirit, right? Jesus is able to work miracles. He rises from the dead. There's power in Jesus that's not in anybody else. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, 
taken up in glory. In some ways, it's kind of a summation of the gospel, isn't it? In those few short verses. The beauty of what God has done for us. To prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt, He loves us and He's done everything possible to make us His own. And I think that's important because we live in a world where people break their promises. We do. I've broken promises. You want to you take trust away in, in a situation, just break your promise. We got a lot of people broken in this world that are broken because somebody else didn't keep their part of the agreement. And it hurts. God understands that, but he has offered to us as broken people a way to be full again. And that is Jesus Clark Cawthorn, in a sermon entitled Joyfully Rescued, he tells this story, and I think it's pretty interesting, about how God has kept his promise to each of us. And the story goes that we have a, a mother who is, she's getting, she's, she's getting on in life, and, and she knows that she's about to pass away, and she keeps telling her children this, this strange, giving them this strange instruction. She goes, you know, keep your eyes, keep your eyes open for the gold. And they're like, okay, mom whatever. Okay. You know, they're not a real rich family. They're like, well, I don't think we have any gold in the house, but maybe mom stashed some in the, in the mattress. I don't know. So the time comes and she passes away and the children are cleaning out the house. That's a difficult, difficult task. They're sharing memories, having a good time, but they're remembering all that she said before she passed away. Keep your eyes open for the gold. And so they, they keep their eyes open. They're like, you know, mom probably was just being kind of funny, messing with us, knowing that we would be looking for this and it would get us together. And then one day the, the probate court says, hey, listen, we need a copy of the will. The lawyer calls them and they need all that. So they go down and they open up a safety deposit box that she has. And as her son puts it on the counter there, he opens up the safety deposit box. He looks inside and he sees, of course, the will. He sees some other important documents they would need, bank statements, things like that. And then he sees a paper bag, just a, a, a plain brown, crumpled up sandwich bag. And he's like, well, what is that? And he opens it up, and inside he finds three rolls, not small rolls, mind you, of gold coins. Three rolls of gold coins. The mother had told him, keep your eyes open for the gold. They didn't necessarily believe her. They thought, oh, mom's just messing with us. Something much more important than gold has been promised to us as Christians. But do we believe it? Now you say, before you say, well, of course, preacher, I believe that. I mean, I believe in heaven, yes. But do you believe that even some of those spiritual blessings exist even now, today in your life? That God every day seeks to bless us somehow. Now, that's not always going to be in the form of some positive thing. Sometimes the blessing is that somebody calls me out. Somebody tells me, preacher, I think you need to look in the mirror. That can be a blessing as well. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. He's promised that we'll be a blessed people. He's promised us that we have an amazing, uh, an amazing blessing that is waiting, waiting for us beyond this life. One that we can't even imagine. One that the Apostle John, as he writes in the book of Revelation, he He's trying to describe it in a way that makes it the most beautiful place in the world. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't even come close. And that's what's waiting for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He is the image 
of the invisible God. He reveals to us the nature of God, both the holiness, justice, and righteousness of God, but also the grace and the mercy. He is the embodiment of God's love for us, and yes, he is the one who proves that God is the keeper of his promises. But here's what I want to finish with tonight. Because later in Colossians, and I don't want to develop this a lot because you'll have someone speak on this later on. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, as Paul does this often, he comes back around to this idea of image. He reminds us that we have the opportunity to become a new person, to become a new self. And he says, and we've put on the new self in verse 10 of Colossians 3, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here's my question for you tonight as we finish up. What's the application of all that we've talked about? When people get to know you, do they get to know a little bit about the nature of God? That truth and love really can coexist and should coexist. Righteousness, justice, and and mercy and grace are not incompatible. They're very much compatible And that followers of God believe in all of those things being important. When people get to know you, do they get to know the embodiment of God's love for all people, not just the people like you? You see, it's pretty easy, and Jesus even calls us out on that. If you only love the people that love you, what reward do you have, right? Even the tax collectors do that, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we try to find a way to love all people, even the folks that aren't very lovable, like me sometimes? (laughs) And then lastly, are we living proof that God exists? Are we living proof that, that there is something more to life career and money and and acclaim and fame and all are we living proof that there is something more? Because we should be if we are being renewed after the image of the one who is the image of the invisible God. Maybe tonight you need to take a look in the mirror, and as you do, you you don't see a reflection of Christ looking back. Most of us, if we're going to be honest, we see that every day. We do. So when we sing the invitation song, if you don't respond publicly, I want you to think privately. When I look in the mirror tonight, when I come before God tonight, Maybe what I should do is ask God, God, what can, what can I do to become more like your son and less like this world? The world doesn't have the answers. God does. Maybe tonight, though, you've not been renewed in the image of the Savior because you've not been born again. Because you have, you've not taken on that new life. In Romans chapter 6, Paul paints this beautiful picture of what baptism connects us to, to the gospel, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in Romans 6, 4, I love this. He says that we can rise up to walk in newness of life. If you don't have the, if you've not been baptized into Christ, you don't have that image. You're not a walking icon of God or of Christ because you've not put him on in baptism. Maybe tonight you need to do that. Or maybe tonight as you think about your life, you realize I've, I've just really not been 
I've not been a very good image bearer of Jesus in my life, of not being the kind of person that I should be. And as people are getting to know me and my world, they're not getting to know Jesus. They're getting to know something or someone else. And the world calls that hypocrisy, right? And maybe tonight you need this group to pray with you and to pray for you about that. Or maybe you just need to find a trusted, wise, spiritual person here tonight to pray with you, to talk about things with, and to figure out a way that you could do that better. But God wants all of us to be his image bearers. And tonight, if you need help with that, we invite you to come while we stand and as we sing.